Good morning. Uh, my name is uh, Todd Kilmeyer, and I serve as the pastor of student ministries here at FBC. You can be seated. Uh, today we'll, we'll be reading scripture, uh, reading from the scriptures in Luke uh, chapter one, verses seventy-six through seventy-nine. If you want to follow along in your copy of scriptures, or if you don't have one, there's one in um, the seat in front of you. And I'm so glad that there's not any names that I have to pronounce this time. Thanks, Greg. Starting in verse 76, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will be go, go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness, and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace." Let's pray. God, we thank you for this time this morning that we can come before you and worship and sing your praise and also recognize, God, that we know you through the truth of your word. We pray as we take some time this morning in your word that you would stir in our hearts, that we would know you better, we would trust you more, and you would do a work of grace within us. We give you all the praise and all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're in Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 80, and we're going to look at two poems. One poem is by Mary, and one poem is by Zechariah. Of course, you know Mary. She is the one who uh, gives birth to Jesus, son of the Most High, and you know Zechariah, his wife, he and uh, his wife Elizabeth are going to have a son named John that we refer to as John the Baptist. Look with me, if you would, in your copy of Scripture at Luke chapter 1, verses 57 through 66. Todd read one portion of one of the poems. We're going to read also all the other portions of it, as well as this section. In Luke chapter 1, 57 through 66, the account of the birth of John the Baptist. Here's what it says. Now, the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son, and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother said, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet, and he wrote... His name is John. And they all wondered. Immediately his mouth was open and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard of them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? for the hand of the Lord was with them. So John is born to Zechariah and Elizabeth, and what we read here is that everyone rejoiced with her. They were happy with Zechariah, and they were happy with Elizabeth. And of course, this happiness is understandable. If you remember what had happened, Zechariah and Elizabeth were very old, and they had never had a child, and sort of that hope of having a child had passed when the angel Gabriel showed up and told Zechariah they would, in fact, have a child. Zechariah didn't exactly believe it, and as a result, he was not able to speak or hear during the time of the pregnancy. And so there's this rejoicing because here is this old woman Elizabeth and this old man Zechariah having a, a child. We might be tempted to think that they were rejoicing with them because they had a baby. Certainly there was that. There certainly was that notion. But the naming of the child lets us know right away there's more going on here than a couple having a child. Why would an old couple want a child or any couple want a child at that time? Uh, for a number of reasons we might expect. But one of them is your Social Security. That kid is your pension. He's going to bring in your crops, and he's going to make sure nobody breaks into your home, 
and he's going to make sure you have food in front of you when you're unable to prepare your own food. So when it comes time to name the child eight days after he was born, at the time of circumcision, Elizabeth says, we're going to name him John. Why? That's what what Gabriel told them to name him. Then they, of course, go to Zechariah. I know that's insulting, ladies. We all get it, but it is what it is. They go to Zechariah and say, what should we call him? He obviously is, can't speak, and obviously they had to make signs to him, so he must have also been unable to hear. He asked for a writing tablet, which would have been a hard surface, maybe of stone or wood, which they would melt wax onto. And then he would have a stylus of some kind, and if you took that stylus and pressed it into the wax, you could, you could make out uh, the words. What's great about those is using a hot piece of metal, you could melt that wax and re- reuse it. And so he wrote on this tablet, his name is John. And immediately his tongue was loosed and he was able to bless God. So why is the naming so important? Because what everybody wanted for Zechariah and Elizabeth is what everybody normally wants with a child, a legacy, a heritage. The family name is going to be carried on. The family will endure. But in naming this child, what the angel said to name them, they're saying, there's something else going on here with this guy. And our family connection is not the main thing. She gave birth, and they had joy because they were a part of the work that God was doing. Certainly, they had joy at having a child. But the greater joy was that they were a part of something that God was doing And the joy came from saying, God is up to something, and he has seen fit to include us in that. So here's what I want us to do this morning, looking at these two poems. I want us to understand the joy that they were having, that we might have it. So the title of the message today is, We Can Have Joy Today. We Can Have Joy Today. And we're going to look at both Mary's poem as well as Zechariah's poem and show the the ways in which they explain to us how today how we can have joy. We can have joy today. Let me start with this. You say, well, you already started. Now we're starting. So if you, We haven't even started yet. Now we're starting. We can have joy today because of this. God's future is worth it. We can have joy today because God's future is worth it. This is not a foreign concept for you. You do this all the time. Cold in winter, you want something to look forward to, so you jump online, you go to your favorite website, you book yourself a hotel in a warm place of the country at the end of February. You say, I'm going to go to a warm spot in the country, you book a hotel, you book your flight, you rent a car, you, you set up some reservations for some places you want to see, and now it's January and it's freezing and, what, 28 degrees this morning, but now in the back of your mind you say, but it's going to be fine because in four weeks it's going to be 85 and sunny next to a pool. And you start thinking about it. I'm looking for, and you get excited about it. And maybe you'll even open up the itinerary if it's really cold outside. No, we're going. Oh, this is going to be fun this day. A number of us are doing this. So this, uh, this sermon is brought to you by... In November, a number of us are going to Israel, and I do this even now, and there's still spots open. That's why this, not, not a lot of spots, so not everybody's done it, but there's still some spots open. But every now and then, I open up the itinerary, oh, we're going to land in Tel Aviv, and then we're going to drive up to Caesarea Philippi, and then we're going to drive over to the Sea of Galilee, hang out for there a little bit, then we'll go down to the Dead Sea, climb up to Masada, or if you're lazy, take the gondola up to Masada. Then we're going to go into Jerusalem and see the Western Wall and see the Temple Mount and see the Eastern Gate and maybe go to the Olive Garden, or no, the Garden of Gethsemane. I I don't know what you call it nowadays, where there are olive trees. And 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 so every night you open up, oh, I can't wait. I'm looking for it. And and what you do is you experience joy today about something that's not happened for months or maybe a year. And what Zechariah and Mary are able to do is they're able to experience joy in the moment today about the work that God is going to do far into the future. Mary and Zechariah rejoice because they have faith in God and the work that God is doing. Think about the work that God has done in Mary and Zechariah's life up to Luke chapter 1. And let me put it this way. He hasn't done a lot. Up until this point, he's told Mary she will carry the Son of God, God Most High, the Messiah, 
and she is. She is pregnant. Elizabeth has told us that. The child hasn't been born yet. He hasn't sat on the eternal throne of David. At this point in her life, she may not even be showing. She may not yet even be experiencing the mocking that's going to be from an unmarried virgin being pregnant. So God has made promises to Mary. Here's what I'm going to do for you. And these promises have already started to happen. But the full experience of those promises coming true is far into the future. But when are they having their joy? They're having it right now. Because they are so certain of the promises of God, they trust God with such certainty, and we're going to see this especially in Mary's poem, she rejoices as though the promises have already come true. That's how certain she is in the promises of God. So we can have joy today because God's future is worth it. We can have joy today because of what's coming. Let's read Mary's poem. This is verse 46 of Luke chapter 1. I'm going to read it. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he has spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever." Look what she says in verse 48, or 49, I should say. He who is mighty has done great things for me. Jesus is not even yet born. She is carrying the Messiah in her, but Jesus is not yet born, and she already is counting it a joy that God has done great things for me. Think of all the suffering that is yet to come in Mary's life, things not yet having occurred in Mary's life, number one. At some point, Joseph is out of the picture. Then, at a certain point, Jesus is in a house teaching, and he utters these words, which would hurt any mother. Your mom and your siblings are outside, and Jesus says, my brother, my mother, my sisters, well, it's those who do the will of the Father. Not not Mary. I mean, she bore me. I mean, how hurtful would that be? Wouldn't it be? Do you think Mary wasn't hurt by that? Of course she was. And not only that, there will be a time in her life where she will stand and see the man that she carried in her womb, crucified on a cross. And maybe in her faith, knowing he is God and that he would be raised from the dead, she found some comfort and solace in that. There is no way that moment wasn't as painful as you would imagine it to be as a mom. These are all things yet to happen. These things haven't even occurred yet. And Mary says this, He has done great things for me. Holy is his name. And how can she do that? It's because she has such certainty in the plan of God to save sinners and bring resurrection that she can say to herself and she can proclaim to the world around her, I am blessed. I am blessed because of the work of God. I am blessed because I get to be a part of what God is doing, and I am blessed because I know the future that God has for us. I can have joy today in weird circumstances, knowing that the future is certain because I trust God with certainty. Look, Zechariah echoes the same thought down in verse 68. We're going to be going back and forth. Hopefully, these poems are on the same page of Scripture in your Bible or on your device. Here's what Zechariah says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He says something has occurred with certainty. God has visited and redeemed his people. Where is the Messiah at this point? In Mary's womb. See, what Zechariah is doing here is talking about the the full work of God to redeem his people as though it were already done. 
This is a, a tense, the way we use a verb. You, you got past tense, present tense, and future tense. What this is is speaking about something in the future, knowing it's going to occur with such certainty that you speak about it as already done. That's how much confidence Mary and Zechariah have in the work of God. Zechariah says, oh, the Messiah is in her room. He's, redemption's happening. It's on. There's, it is so certain. I trust it with such certainty that I'm going to speak with, of it as having already occurred. And since I have that certainty in my heart, I can today, no matter what's going on, have joy. I can have joy today because God's future is worth it, and I trust God's future. Look at verse 51 and 52, if you don't mind. Here's what Mary says again to remind us by the Spirit. God has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Isn't that interesting to say? Who's in charge in Israel? Rome, an emperor far away. How exalted is Mary? Not a lot. So what she is doing here is she's saying, I know, I know what God has done in the past. I know what God is doing in the present. I know what his word says, and I know what his message to me was from the angel, and I trust what God is like. God is strong, and he is scattering the proud and will scatter the proud. She is doing the same thing we read in Zechariah's poem, which is this. Speaking about the finished work of God with such confidence that she says it's already done. Is God going to one day completely and totally scatter the proud? The answer is yes. Has he done it yet? He's working on it. But she is so confident that God always does what he says he is going to do that she says it's done. God scatters the proud. And so therefore, as a person of humble estate... She can have joy knowing what God is doing. She has joy because she has such a trust in, in God's promises that she considers future events so certain she considers them done. And this trust is what brings out joy. Because in the present day where circumstances change, they ebb, they go up, they go down, they go in, they go out. In the present day, we have joy, not because of today, but, but because of a certain future that God promises. I'll put it this way. We can trust God and have joy that is experienced before joyful stuff happens. That's what we're seeing in Mary and we're seeing in Zechariah. They trust God to such a degree that they have joy before joyful stuff happens. And this is what I was describing about a trip you have planned. You have joy because it hasn't happened yet, but you anticipate it. Now, how much you let yourself get excited depends on how certain you are that thing is going to happen, right? And now I talked about our trip to Israel. Well, there's a lot of question marks, isn't there? Traveling nowadays is a little bit weird. So on the one hand, we have great joy, but what if Israel shuts down again? How much control do I have over that? As it turns out, I made a couple of calls. And I have no control, <laughs> as it turns out. And you are click. That's what I got. So we, but Mary and Joseph, or Mary and Zechariah, their joy is not in future circumstances that they kind of hope happen. Their, their joy is on future things in the Lord that they know are going to happen. And so as a result, today, no matter what's going on, they have joy. They can have peace. To trust God, that's the goal here. How can we have joy? God's future is worth it, so we can trust God to such a degree that we have joy that is experienced even before the joyful stuff happens. Let's look some more at Zechariah's words now, beginning in verse 68. And Todd read a portion of this poem, but I'm going to read uh, the entire thing. So beginning in verse 68, let's look at Zechariah's poem. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David, as he spoke by the mouth of his, only, his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy 
promise to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Verse 76, now talking about John. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of his salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Look at verse 78. Fantastic verse. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. This is a statement of faith. The sun will dawn. There will be a day where the sun rises again and we see the light of God. The dark night is almost over, he's saying. The sun will rise. The light at the end of the tunnel, he is saying, is seen with eyes of faith. When we find ourselves in the darkness, when we find ourselves in circumstances that are are weighty and difficult and we struggle and we, we strain with our eyes to see when the end of them are, what Zechariah is saying is the light that brings real hope, the light that brings joy no matter what circumstances, is light that is seen with eyes of faith. When we're in the tough circumstances, we look for other kinds of light, which may be appropriate. I'm not downplay them too much, but when things are hard, we're looking for a hopeful email or maybe news from the doctor or a, a, a note of reconciliation from somebody that we have parted ways with or, or, or something in the mail to say uh, the bill won't be as high as it is or whatever it might be. We say, I need a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel. And sometimes God provides those. But what Zechariah is saying is joy that endures is saying the light at the end of the tunnel is not light I see with my eyes, is light I see by faith, that one day the sun will rise, that there is a certain future in God that I can be settled in. Joy at the light to come that is seen with eyes of faith. That's what he's saying here. The sunrise shall visit us from on high, and he doesn't want us to set that hope too short. The sunrise will rise, and my current difficult situations might come to an end. And, and Zechariah would hope for that. He had a son, and he was hopeful for that. But he wants something more than that. He wants his hope to be fixed on the ultimate hope, which is God's finished work in the future. So this is John and uh, Zech- Zechariah and Mary. Did I say John earlier? You probably heard me wrong, because I can't remember the last time I made a mistake. It's been literally minutes. Zechariah and Mary are saying, our hope is fixed on a future thing. It's not fixed on anything that occurs today. If our joy is fixed on today being a good day, our joy will shift. It always, and that's your experience as much as it is mine. How is your day today? Well, it's a good day or it's a lousy day. If my joy is instead fixed on the enduring promises of God that always come true, then my joy won't waver no matter what today offers. And that's where we have to be. This is what Mary and Zechariah were learning in their life. And certainly they weren't perfect at it, just as we aren't. But they, what we see in these poems is that ideal of saying, if my joy is fixed on the finished promises of God, my joy can't be shaken. If my joy is fixed on things going my way today, it can be shaken. And what we want is joy that endures because God's future is worth it. Look at verse 70 and we'll finish this section. Verse 70 says this, as God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old. Here's what a message Zechariah has for us. How does Zechariah have hope and faith to have joy that his future is with God and it's worth it? Because his Bible told him. That's what he says here. He looked, he says, how do I know God's future is certain? How do I know I can trust God? How do I know that I can have joy in the Lord because he always keeps his promises and there is no question about that? Because I read in my Bible the Red Sea was parted. Because I read in my Bible the Israelites ate manna for 40 years and their shoes didn't wear out. Because I read in my Bible that the walls of Jericho fell down 
And I read in my Bible in 2 Samuel 7 that God told David, your son will sit on your throne and his reign will never end. So Zechariah had faith, not because Gabriel talked to him. How much faith did he have because Gabriel talked to him? None. He doubted the entire time. Here's another thing to pay attention to. When writing a poem about why he has faith, notice what he didn't say. What didn't he say? Well, I've seen Gabe. He's glowy, kind of sparkly. Got a bit of an attitude sometimes. Notice he didn't say that. Here's a guy that had an experience that most of us would envy, wouldn't we? He saw an angel of the Lord. The angel talked to him. And when it came time to say, I trust the Lord and his promises, what did he say? I trust what came out of the mouth of the prophets of old. Isn't that strange? How much we want to have an, a, a powerful experience of God today. And when Zechariah had a powerful experience of God today, all it did was bolster the faith he had in his scripture. We know that God will do what he promised because God in his scripture has always done what he has promised. Since God was faithful to Israel, will he keep his promises to us? Yes. Since God was faithful to his apostles, will he keep his promise with us? Yes. Since God was faithful with you and I last week, will he keep his promise? Yes. Since God keeps his promises, we can trust him. Since we trust him, we know our future is certain. So how certain is it that we can have joy today no matter what? It's certain. That's where our joy comes from. We can trust God because he always keeps his promises. So we can have joy because the future is worth it. All right, let's look at another part of this. We can have joy not only because the future is worth it, but because God includes us in his victory. Another element of the joy of the Lord is knowing that we are not spectators in the, word, in, the, in the work of God, but God includes us in the work He is doing, bringing victory in Jesus. You know what this is like. Maybe you, at a certain point in your life, were given a pocket knife. You remember how old you were when somebody handed you that pocket knife? I, don't know, I know at a certain point you handed a kid a pocket knife. You say, you know what, I think you can handle this. And what do you say when you hand a kid a pocket knife? Don't cut yourself. I mean, it's the dumbest thing we say. Oh, well, that was the first thing I was going to do was shiv my own arm. But since you said not to cut myself, I guess I won't. Well, you hand it to him, don't cut yourself. And what is every kid, and I might say this, I might even say this this way, I don't want to sound sexist, but every little boy, he's got a pocket knife in his pocket and he's fiddling with it, right? He's got it. What's he waiting for? There's a day he is waiting for. And he carries that pocket knife every single day. And then finally that day comes. It's an amazing day. He's standing there. Who knows who he's standing with? He might be standing with Grandpa. might be standing with Pops. might be standing with Uncle, Uncle Bill. And what do they say? Hey, anybody got a knife? <laughs> and that kid, what does that kid do? He can't get his hand in his pocket fast enough. Because he's worried some other kid's going to get his knife out faster. And he yanks that knife out, and he's trying to play it cool. He's trying to play it cool. Here you go, Gramps. Now, it's kind of sharp. I just sharpened it, so <laughs> don't cut yourself. And he hands it off. And he's trying to play it chill, like, you know, it's, it's good. But inside, he's like, I'm in the game. I'm not just, I'm not just standing here like the little kid that got, I'm, I'm in the game. It doesn't matter if he's gutting a fish or opening a Christmas present or cutting a piece of twine or worse yet, Operating a screw with a knife, you don't do that, but it might have been. He doesn't care. He's in the game. He's got joy because all of a sudden, this little kid is contributing to something that's past him. He says, I'm, I'm in. And this is the joy that we're invited into. We get to have joy because God includes us in his victory. He, he includes us. He's got, anybody got the, the gift of helps? Anybody, anybody got the gift of generosity in the house? Hey, anybody, anybody got the, the gift of evangelism? And God turns to us and says, are you in? And this is the joy that happens. And Mary and Zechariah rejoice because of God's generosity that he lets, the, he lets them participate in what he's doing. God is most glorified 
through his plan to redeem people and creation from sin and death. God is most glorified through his plan to redeem people and creation from sin and death. He has decided to include us in his plan. We therefore get to experience his glory with him. He is most glorified. It's the one thing that brings him the most glory is redemption. And he says, you want a piece of this action? Do you want in? And Mary and Zechariah said, you would let us be a part of this? Look at verse 47 and 48 of Luke chapter 1. Look what it says. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. Why will all generations call Mary blessed? Because she had a baby? Billions of women have had babies. That is not a novelty, as far as I can tell. She had a baby. That is not why she was blessed. She was blessed because God let her in on the action. Did God need Mary to bring Jesus? No. He could have used anyone. Did God need anyone to bring Jesus? No. John the Baptist says it later. If God was running out of children of Abraham, he could make them out of rocks. God chose to use Mary. God chooses, and she counted herself blessed because God decided to include her in his plan to save sinners. She was blessed because she gets to be a part of the salvation that God is bringing. Now look at Zechariah says the same thing down in verse 76. Turn down verse 76, Luke chapter 1, speaking of his son John. You child... You, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Zechariah is excited here because his son, John, is going to be used by God to make the way of the Lord. And what is John going to do to prepare the way of the Lord? He's going to tell people they are sinners. That's how you prepare people for the hope of forgiveness. So John grows up, he goes out in the wilderness, and he baptizes people. The book of Acts is going to tell us that John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. So baptism, we need to review that just very quickly. The way baptism works, it's a symbol of being identified, identified with something. Kids do it nowadays. They wear jerseys with names on them. So you might put it on green jersey. It says Metcalf on the back. It identifies you as a fan of the Seahawks and of DK Metcalf. And you may or may not want to be identified as that anymore. After last night, everybody sold their Patriots gear, right? Nobody wants to be identified. So what baptism back then, there was a word used for taking a white cloth, you baptize it into purple dye. It comes out. It is now identified as a white cloth. No, it's now purple. So you show up to John and say, I want to be baptized into your baptism. I, I, you are now identified as what? A sinner. That's what you are. You're agreeing with John the Baptist. When you get baptized by John, you're a sinner. Who got baptized by John? Jesus did. How much sinning did Jesus do? Zero. He never did anything wrong. He always did everything right. And he always did everything right exactly when he was supposed to. He gets baptized by John. Why? Is he identifying as a sinner? No, no, no. He's not a sinner. What's he doing? He's identifying with the sinners. So we get baptized by John, prepared the way. I'm a sinner. I need hope. Jesus comes, shows up. I'm with the sinners. Now what I'm going to do, Jesus says, I'm going to take your sin to the cross with me. And he gets nailed to the cross, and the penalty for our sin is bore on his shoulders, and he dies defeating sin. Sin now no longer has any reign. He took our sin and killed it. And then three days later, he rose from the dead and said, death now doesn't have any rule over you either. Sin can't kill you. That's cool. Death can't kill you. That's awesome. So you and I get baptized as forgiven sinners risen from the dead with Christ. So we're identified, being baptized into Christ, as forgiven, 
resurrected uh, people of the Lord. And so Zechariah is ecstatic that John gets to spend his life telling people they're sinners. Because that's, you have to be there before you can seek forgiveness. And, and Zechariah considers it a joyful privilege that God would invite him into a small role of parenting John the Baptist. And as soon as John was old enough to live on his own, he was gone. And Zechariah and Elizabeth were once again childless. And he lost his head. Did they have joy? Yeah, because they figured out joy is not dependent on whether or not God gives me what I want. This is the problem with our circumstances is we think we will finally be happy when God gets it into his thick skull that what I think makes me happy will. When God finally figures out I've been right all along and gives it to me, I'll finally be happy. Zechariah and Elizabeth figured out uh, I'll finally experience joy when I hitch my joy to what God is up to. When I hitch my joy to his certain promises and when I hitch my joy to be a part of what he is doing to defeat sin and death in the world around me, then I will have joy. John is used by God to make the way for sinners to need forgiveness. Jesus gives forgiveness. Joy is being used by God in this great plan to redeem sinners and bring forgiveness to those who need it. We have joy not by merely watching God have victory. We experience joy today as Christians by being a part of what God is doing to bring victory over sin and death, to engage in material ways in his mission to save people from their sin and to make things new. Look at verse 74, last verse, and then we'll close with this. It was an oath, this is 73 and 74, it was an oath he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. God has victory. We join in that victory, and the result is that we get to serve God without fear. In fact, we get to serve God even with joy, knowing we cannot be defeated. If you tell somebody that they're a sinner and Jesus will forgive them and they kill you, is that a problem? Well, it is. I mean, your plans for Friday are pretty much hosed. And the people around you are going to be sad, and they should be sad. But if I'm getting this correctly, sin and death have no victory. What's the worst thing you can do to a Christian? Kill him. I don't see the problem. Because we're raising from the dead. Now, this all becomes a problem if Christianity is for you merely a fairy tale. It's like the ranch dressing on your pizza. I've got a pretty good life going, and if you add ranch dressing to it, it's a little bit better. If Jesus is just for you, the fairy dust of making your days a little bit better, then dying would be awful. But if your entire hope for joy is hitched on the work of God to save sinners and a future that is certain, then dying is not a problem. Now, I don't have a death wish any more than anybody else. But if, if the worst thing somebody can do to us is not a problem, we get to serve God without fear. Now, for many of us, dying's not the problem. It's being made fun of that's the problem. It turns out people think we're kooky because we believe Jesus is raised from the dead. Listen, I think it's kooky, but if 500 people hadn't seen it, I mean, I don't know what to do with it. You see what I'm saying? It's just simply a historical fact. Jesus is raised from the dead. If Jesus is not raised from the dead, what are you doing in here on a Sunday morning? Stay home and sleep in. No, I'm serious. We get up early. Most people sleep off their hangovers on Sundays. Or coming to church with a hangover, apparently. What's up? You guys all right? Or no, I'm kidding. That was rude. That was inappropriate. We, no, Jesus is raised from the dead, not just because because it makes me feel good, and that not just because I hope he's raised from the dead. He's raised from the dead because hundreds of people saw him raised from the dead and then went to their violent deaths because they saw him raised from the dead. It's a historical fact. Jesus is raised. He's coming back. So therefore, my joy is not based on how today goes. 
My joy is based on what tomorrow holds, and the Word tells me tomorrow is going to be amazing because God always keeps His promises, and my joy can be even more full because today God says, I get to be a part of the game. I get in on it. The future that's coming, we get a piece of the action. We can have joy today because God's future is worth it. And we can have joy today because God includes us in his victory. Here's a question for you. Is joy a goal in your spiritual life? It's a new year. A number of you have made some goals about your spiritual life. A number of us have said, okay, I want to read the Bible more this year. Maybe some of us have uh, went and bought a book with a prayer plan. Which I want to pray more this year. That's fantastic. These are all great things. Maybe you say, you know, this year I want to share the gospel. Let me start praying that I can maybe share, share the gospel with one of my neighbors this year. Maybe you've got some goals around the spiritual things in your life, or uh, is joy a goal in your spiritual life? You say, well, how can you make joy a goal? Is joy a goal in your spiritual life? Joy is not merely giddiness. Joy is not necessarily happiness. I might put joy this way. Joy is a settledness, a rest, an ease no matter what the circumstances are, and joy is experienced different ways. So when I have joy in the future of the Lord, when things are going amazing, that joy results in an experience of happiness and joy in the Lord that is more than the circumstances might normally allow for. Lord, you've blessed me today and the future. This is incredible. That's what joy does. But then when circumstances get a little weird and we go through difficulty and suffering, Joy says, okay, this is hard. I'm not going to pretend it's not hard. I'm not going to pretend I'm not sad or sorrowful or in pain. But joy allows me a settledness, an ease, a rest that says, my hope is not hitched on today. It's on another day where I know God's plans will come through. Is joy a goal in our spiritual life? How do you make joy a goal in your spiritual life? To desire by God's grace that we would trust him more. That our hope and joy would be hitched on the future not on today. The experience of joy allows us the ability in whatever circumstances to have patient endurance. That's what the entire book of Hebrews is about. Patient endurance. Joy allows us in the waiting, in the trial, in the weightiness of whatever God has brought into your life to trust that I know what the future is going to be like, and so I can live today in the reality of that. That the weightiness of today doesn't have to crush me because a future is coming that is full of hope and peace. So the experience of joy can give us patient endurance. Okay, last one. I saved the best for last. And you're thinking, I'll be the judge of that. Fine, I don't care. Kingdom of God is not a spectator sport. To fully engage and experience the joy of God is to press into the work of the kingdom. Now, what's great about doing the work of God's kingdom in our lives, we don't have to go anywhere. You don't have to quit your job. You look at where has God put you today? In your home, in your work, in your community, in your church, in your family. You look at these places that God has seen fit to put you and say, what does it look like to live as a person of hopeful joy in this sphere of influence? What does it look like in my home to serve my family, to pray for my family, to have hope and joy in the sphere of my family? What does it look like in my work to engage with, with God's kingdom? What does it mean to have integrity and to be a person of my word and, and all of these kinds of things in my work? What does it mean in the places God has put me to say, I am not merely here to make a profit. I am not merely here to parent children. I am not merely here to take care of my home and my neighborhood. This particular place, God has seen to put me as a lighthouse. And what does it mean to serve God in his kingdom, not as a spectator, but to bring the hope of the gospel to this particular place? It might be a heart of service. It might be needing to share the gospel with your coworker or neighbor. It might be a willingness to set aside your own agenda and seek the best interest of your coworker or of your children or, I'll say it, guys, of your spouse. Wild card weekend, guys. I don't know, you might have to turn the game off. No, that's going too far. That's just, I'm kidding. 
Look at verse 76. You got it there in front of you? And you, child, will be called. What is in that for you? So when you're talking about John the Baptist, Zechariah said this, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. And do you think God does not have something in there with your name in it? And you, child, will be called. What is that? There is not a person with the Holy Spirit in them that God doesn't have something in there. I don't know what it is for you. I, I, I can't. There's no way for me to know. I do know it's not empty. And I do know to the degree we ignore it and seek our own agenda and identity, our joy will be limited. It's an act of faith. By God's grace, when I say, you child, me child, you are called to be this in in your home and in your work, when we answer that call and say, God, I am in and I am grateful by your generosity, you have called me into the game you will experience his joy. I'm not saying it's going to be easy. I'm not saying everything is going to go great. I'm not saying you're going to survive. But I am saying you will have joy. Because we can have joy today because God's future is worth it. And we can have joy today because God calls us to participate with him in his victory. Join me as I pray. God, we thank you for the kindness you have shown us. You did not need to do any of these things. You did not have to save us. You did not have to send Jesus. You did not have to extend your grace and mercy to us. When we sinned, you could have immediately just sent us to judgment. Everything you have done, giving us your promises to bring grace and forgiveness through Jesus, is merely an expression of your loving kindness, your mercy, and your grace. God, we are grateful, and we are joyful that you always keep your promises. And because of that, God, we know there is a future coming that is so amazing that we can have joy today, no matter what today holds. Would you, God, give us that certainty that we see in Mary and Zechariah, such certainty in the future that we live today as though it had already occurred? God, though we must admit the greatest act of generosity you have shown us as believers is that you have called us into your mission of redemption. And God, we have been idle. And we've got a lot of stuff that we're doing, but a lot of that stuff isn't your mission. I would pray, God, in this moment that you would move in our hearts as individuals. Show us, God, in the places you have already put us, What does it mean for us, God, in those places to be about your mission, to bring redemption and life and hope? God, would you soften our hearts? We don't believe that you will actually give us joy through being on mission. But your word is clear. Joy is found by engaging in the work of redemption in the places you have put us. God, give us the grace of experiencing that joy. We thank you for your love. We thank you for Jesus. We can't wait till he comes back. In his name we pray. Amen. Would you stand up with us? We're going to close with a song.
God who heals. We sing to the God who saves. We sing to the God who always makes a way. Cause he hung up on that cross and he rose up from that grave. My God still rolling stones away. There's joy in the house of the Lord. There's joy in the house of the Lord today. We won't be quiet. Shout out your praise, there's joy in the house of the Lord. Our God is surely in this place. We won't be quiet. We shout out your praise. Cause we were the beggars, now we're royalty. We were the prisoners, now we're running free. We are forgiven. Accepted, redeemed by His grace Let the house of the Lord sing praise We were the beggars, now we're royalty We were the prisoners, now we're running free We are forgiven, accepted, redeemed by His grace Let the house of the Lord sing praise There's joy in the house of the Lord There's joy in the house of the Lord today And we won't be quiet We shout out your praise There's joy in the house of the Lord Our God is surely in this place And we won't be quiet We shout out your praise There's joy in the house of the Lord there's joy in the house of the Lord today. We won't be quiet. We shout out your praise. There's joy in the house of the Lord. Our God is surely in this place. And we won't be quiet. We shout out your Behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me. And I will give to everyone according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside of the dogs, those who practice magic arts and the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root, and the offspring of David, and the bright and morning star. God, we just pray that you would give us the joy of enduring to the very end and seeing the day of your dawning. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless. Have a great week. We'll see you next week.